Let me encourage you to turn now in your Bibles. We're looking at Luke chapter 10. Turn with me to Luke chapter 10. And we're looking at from verse 25 through verse 37, the parable of the Good Samaritan. Though we will also refer to the story of Martha and Mary right afterwards, so I won't read from that, but we will refer to it. Let us pray. Our Lord God, thank you that you are indeed king forevermore. And we ask that in the next few moments, as we study your word, the king, the king's word, that we will give it that kind of attention that kind of um, uh, response and significance that we will uh, treat your word in the way that it truly is, is coming from the King of Kings, King forevermore. We ask for the power of your spirit as we tackle this important matter and this important text, and we pray these things in Jesus' name, amen. So friends, Luke chapter 10, and beginning at verse 25, is on page 869 in the church Bibles. And behold, a lawyer stood up to put him to the test, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? He said to him, What is written in the law? How do you read it? And he answered, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and your neighbor as yourself. And he said to him, You have answered correctly. Do this and you will live. But he, desiring to justify himself said to Jesus, and who is my neighbor? Jesus replied, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, and he fell among robbers who stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. Now by chance, a priest was going down that road, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. So likewise, a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion. He went to him and bound up his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he set him on his own animal and brought him to an inn and took care of him. And the next day he took out two denarii and gave him to the innkeeper, saying, Take care of him, and whatever more you spend, I will repay you when I come back. Which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? He said, the one who showed him mercy. And Jesus said to him, you go and do likewise. Well, friends, we're beginning this morning a new sermon series called Cross and Culture. And as we begin, it's worth asking why are we tackling this particular theme from the Bible? There are two reasons why we're doing this. Ready? First, It is very important today that Christians have a clear understanding of what the Bible is saying about various cultural matters. So in my view, the church cannot be silent when Christians are confused about such things as these, race, sexuality, social justice, or indeed the role of men and women in church. But while the church cannot be silent about such things, nor must it simply lecture about its own opinions or tradition about those things, our conversation must be firmly rooted in the Bible. So throughout this series, we will be expositing, that is explaining, what the Bible has to say about these matters. I am not interested in my opinion, and I know that you are not either. 
Well, maybe you are, perhaps. You're too polite to tell me that you're not. But I am interested in what the Bible says. There's a recent statistic that says that 75% of Christians in America wish the church would help them understand the Bible better. And that's given me some encouragement to realize that we should stick to what we know, which is teaching the Bible on these things, and we're going to do that. There is a second reason, though, and it is an even wider one. While, of course, it's important that Christians have a clear understanding of what the Bible says about some of these important matters today, it is also very important that non-Christians have an understanding of what uh, the Bible says too. You say, well, why is that? Well, because many of these issues, uh, uh, Christians today are viewed by non-Christians as having, um, as taking positions that are impossible to accept, arbitrary, dangerous, even immoral. That is the way that many non-Christians view how many Christians speak of these matters today. Now, given that um, there are a lot of Christians in America, and given that about a third of the population in the entire globe is Christians, of course it's very important that even non-Christians understand what the Bible says about these things, and indeed why for it will influence many people in the world. Those are the two goals, and as always when I preach the gospel, there is a primary goal, which is to glorify Jesus through the proclamation of the gospel, that we might be saved and built up in our faith. I take that as read, but I express it so you realize that when I talk about these issues, I'm still preaching the gospel. Now, with these two goals in mind, let me tell you what the plan is this morning. There are going to be three movements to the sermon. First movement is an explanation of what this text, the Good Samaritan, actually means in the context of Luke's gospel. I suspect this will come as a surprise to some of us uh, because while the story of the Good Samaritan is very well known, it is often misunderstood. Then the second movement, having established the meaning of the text, will be to relate that more specifically to the conversation in our own day. And then third, of course, to apply what that means for us. Now, I thought long and hard about how to structure the sermon this morning, and there probably are more creative ways of doing it, three points and a poem, maybe. Um, But I think this three-movement approach goes from the text to the theme of social justice to then the practical application for Christians and non-Christians is the clearest and therefore the best And if you like to remember the structure of sermons by single words, think of it as text, theme, me. Or what does the text say? How does that shape our thinking about the theme of social justice? And then what does that say to me? So the first movement, what does the text say? And as I mentioned before, I think you'll find it surprising. On the surface of it, it all seems pretty obvious. There's a guy, a lawyer that is a religious expert in what we call the Old Testament law, who comes to Jesus with a question and gets an answer in the form of a story. And therefore, the point of the story, it seems, is that we should do the same as the good Samaritan. Though note, he is nowhere called good in the story, but just Samaritan to emphasize the shock of a Samaritan being the hero of any story at the time. What the Samaritan did, which is so exemplary, is to fulfill the command to love his neighbor. Go, therefore, and do likewise. So at this apparently obvious reading, 
The text means, go and do what the Samaritan did, which is to care for people when they are in need. Now, clearly, the text does mean this, but is that all that it means? I think not. For there are indications that there is more going on here than that simple surface reading to begin with. Notice how Jesus reframes the lawyer's question. So the lawyer wants to know, who is my neighbor? But Jesus, through his story, reframes the question to be not who is my neighbor, but am I acting as a neighbor? In other words, what the story means then is that the issue is never who is my neighbor. The issue is, am I acting as a neighbor? And this, of course, puts the question back to the lawyer and back to us. Am I loving my neighbor as myself? But before we start to use this story to beat each other up and load guilt on Christians, we should notice some other things about this story. Remember that we're diving into the story in the middle of a book, in fact, a two-volume work called Luke Acts. And the start of this two-volume work, at the beginning of Luke's gospel, Luke tells us that he is writing so that we may know the certainty of the things that we have been taught. His goal then is certainty or assurance or a firm grasp or literally not tripping up. That's why he is writing. So the whole of what Luke is uh, doing here in his gospel is for the goal of us not tripping up about the things that Jesus said and did. What Jesus said and did being how Luke then describes what he wrote in his first volume, the gospel of Luke, when he summarizes at the start of his second volume, the book of Acts. Now, this story of uh, the Good Samaritan, and as I mentioned, the following story of Martha and Mary, where Mary there is sitting at Jesus' feet and listening to Jesus' word and is commended by Jesus for so doing. Those two together are for a purpose together, and they only appear in Luke's gospel for a reason. The overall reason then, we now know, is that we may have certainty, not trip up, about what Jesus has said and done. You say, well, what has Jesus said and done? Well, in summary, what Jesus said and did is die on the cross and rise again. Or as most scholars conclude, as his teaching is also throughout his uh, work, Luke's gospel, the main theme is salvation. So the question then is, how did this story of the Good Samaritan and its companion story of Martha and Mary, only appearing in Luke's gospel, help us with the issue of certainty that what Jesus said and did really happened and is really true and you can count on it as true and not get tripped up about being saved. How does that work, Luke? The answer is quite simple once you see it in its wider context. So the lawyer comes to Jesus, an expert in the Old Testament law, and he asks Jesus how he can inherit eternal life. Eternal life being a standard way of talking about being saved at the time, starting with Daniel chapter 12 in the Old Testament and then afterwards, and is the same question that the rich young man wants to know about later. He means, what do I need to do to get saved? Saved meaning not made a decision for Jesus at some point in the past, but be a part of what God has planned from the beginning for those who follow him. How can I be a part of that big plan of God's for his people? The lawyer is using language that is drawn from a part of Deuteronomy, particularly Deuteronomy 6, 
about inheriting what God has planned for his people. Now, because he was an expert in the law, Jesus asks him how he reads the law. What does he read in it? He's throwing the question back to him. How do you read it? But when Jesus says that, what he means is, how do you recite it? Jesus is referring to the Shema, that is the reciting of the hear, O Israel, the Lord your God is one that was recited by people like this lawyer every time they went to the synagogue and actually comes right after the part about inheriting the land in Deuteronomy. So today it would be similar if you're a churchgoer and you grew up in church, someone might say, what's in the creed? How do you recite it? Well, the lawyer recites the Shema accordingly, though interestingly he doesn't get it quite right. Not exactly so. He changes a few parts of the grammar and adds in some explanatory gloss, which might indicate that he didn't know his Bible as well as he should have done. But he does fine. And Jesus says, go do this and you will live. That is, you will be saved. In other words, what Jesus is doing is saying, practice what you preach, lawyer, and then you'll do fine. Jesus turns the question back to him. And so the lawyer then, now rocked a little back on his heels, wants, we're told, to justify himself. That is, he wants to prove that he isn't asking foolish questions and also wants to prove that he has done what Jesus is suggesting that he has not really done. So at the beginning, he came to test Jesus. That is, Jesus had been praising God for the way the 70 that he had sent out, had been preaching the gospel and how they were saved. And the lawyer comes along and interrupts Jesus and says, as it were, really? Really? Is that how you're saved? What do you need to do? And then Jesus, by phrasing the reply in the way he does, makes it clear that he's saying, well, lawyer, if you actually do what you preached, you'd be fine. But you don't. So the lawyer now needs to justify himself as actually doing what he says he should be doing every time he goes to the synagogue. So now he looks for a definition of who is my neighbor, probably hoping for a very narrow one that just meant other Israelites, other Jews at the time, as that is how they interpreted the law to mean then to exclude all those troublesome Romans and other ethnic groups who had occupied their land. Now, here's the first really big surprise. Get this. The lawyer quotes from the Shema about loving God completely, adds in from Leviticus about loving your neighbor, a well-known summary of the Ten Commandments, the first half about loving God, the second half about loving your neighbor, but his question does not even address the first half at all. The lawyer does not say to Jesus, who is my God that I may love him? He does not even seem interested in loving God. He ignores that altogether. And then Luke deliberately underlines that, I think. Well, in the next story that goes on to explain this, you find Mary, who is commended by Jesus for listening to his teaching. There, Luke says, is an example of someone who really is loving God, for Jesus is God, 
And she loves him and loves his word. But the lawyer does not have that at all. He's just interested in neighbor love. But is he really? The story ends inconclusively. We don't know whether he changed his mind or heart or not to love God and therefore really love neighbor. But the story is saying that in order to reach out to neighbor with real love, you need to listen up to Jesus with real love as God first of all. You say, well, how does it say that? Well, so there's this lawyer. He's kind of rocked back on his heels by Jesus' reply. He wants to justify himself. And then comes this story about the good Samaritan. Of course, the point of the story, like in all stories, is in the plot, the way it's structured. So you have a man, a Jewish man, going down about 3,000 feet descent from Jerusalem to Jericho on this road, known at the time, actually, as the Way of Blood, because it was such a good place for bandits to hide out. And he gets beaten up, and he's left half for dead. So first comes along a priest. Remember that lawyers are equivalent to scribes in Luke's gospel, and they're all sort of connected to the religious establishment of the temple at the time. The priest comes along, he sees, and he passes by. Levite, another religious professional, sees, gets a little closer, says when he came to that place, but he still passes by. Now, you would expect in the story for the next person to be a secular or non-religious Jew, but Jesus goes a lot further. It is a Samaritan. Jews and Samaritans hated each other, but it is the Samaritan who's the hero. He uses medical first aid, oil and wine are attested as medical interventions at the time. He takes care of him. He has to leave the next day to carry on with his business, but then leaves enough money for 24 days in a hotel. This act of compassion by which the Samaritan was moved is going to cost him. And then Jesus asks, who acts as a neighbor? And the lawyer cannot even say the word Samaritan. So much does he hate them. He has to use a roundabout way of saying it was him. The one who had mercy, whoever that may be. Go and do likewise, Jesus says. So what does this story mean? Obviously, at one level, it means that we should be neighborly and take care of the poor and disadvantaged that we come across without trying to make excuses about who are the deserving poor or whether someone really is in the right frame of mind to receive help. You see need, you do something about it, go and do likewise. But at another level, it means that none of us can perfectly do that. The lawyer wanted to justify himself, but he did not. He did not keep the love of neighbor law perfectly, though perhaps at some level he wanted to. So what the story is saying in the wider context, just around the passage, is that the way to get saved, that is to inherit eternal life, that is not just make a decision, but repent and believe and experience the love of God and love God and therefore love neighbor, to be a part of all that God has planned for his people from eternity past to eternity future. The way to do that is to do what Mary did, that is to sit at the feet of Jesus and receive his word. For that will transform you by the encounter with Jesus as God 
and therefore give you the love of God and therefore enable you to love your neighbor. Now, before I uh, summarize this in one, I hope, memorable sentence, there is another factor that we should not miss. The religious people fail the wounded man. It is the outcast, the alien, who is loving. And uh, there's a famous psychological study, an illustration of this, back from the 1970s, a psychological study. The study actually took students from Princeton Divinity School. In other words, all the uh, religious professionals at the time. And uh, the study went like this. They gathered some of them in one building and gave them a task, which they would have to do in another building, a short walk away. And that task was to be um, giving a little Bible talk, the kind of thing that divinity school students, seminary students love to be asked to do. You know, you're going to give a Bible talk. And for some of them, though not for all of them, for some of them it was actually to give a Bible talk on the text of the Good Samaritan. And they were told then that though um, they were, you know, they were meeting one building, there'd be a change of plans and the building was used by some other people, so they had to walk to the other building in order to give that talk. And along the way, each of them individually came across a man apparently in real need, you know, collapsed on the ground, groaning, looked like he'd been beaten up or something. What the study discovered was the following. Those who were given more of a hurry up, you know, quick, you're already late, get over there. They were much less likely to help the person in need. It also discovered that very, very few of these um, divinity school theological students acted in any way as a good Samaritan. Even from those who had just been given the task of giving a talk on the text of a Good Samaritan. In fact, some of them literally stepped over the person on the way to give that talk. So the point of the story here in Luke, which that famous psychological study illustrates, is not that we all have to be Good Samaritans and we must try harder to be so. The point is that we like the lawyer and the priest, cannot do that unless we understand what he so obviously did not understand. That he did not have, that he did not have that compassion, that his heart was not moved, that he did not have the love of God. Whereas Mary, sitting at Jesus' feet, simple Mary, because she loved God, then she would act in neighbor love. So I've had to summarize this all in one simple phrase. It would be this. You must first listen up in order to reach out. In order to reach out, you must first listen up. Now, here's the second movement. What does all that mean to the theme of social justice? I have uh, two little points under this. The first is a redefinition. The second is a reprioritization. 
So the redefinition is important that we define it by um, sustainable love for neighbor being rooted in passionate love for God. In other words, you want to see a society where people are kind to each other, then what you want to encourage is people committed to Jesus' word like Mary. And you say, is that really the case? I know all sorts of things about church history and there have been people who've looked like they've done that and haven't really acted with love. So we need to do some redefinition. What is social justice? You know, that term is thrown around all the time these days. But what actually is it? And how would you know when you had it? Um, I quite like the child definition, which was uh, given by Pip in Great Expectations. Here it is. In the little world in which children have their existence, there's nothing so finely perceived and finely felt as injustice. In other words, justice is at root a sense of fairness. That's not fair, we say. In essence, it's pretty similar to a classic definition from Aristotle. Aristotle, if you want to know, he defined it as the just is equal. Now, by that, Aristotle didn't mean that justice is everyone having exactly the same. He's often been misunderstood that way. As if it would be fair if we cut the knees off all NBA basketball players to make them the same height as the rest of us. You know, it would be a fairer match if I was playing basketball. No, what it means is that behind justice is a sense of what is fair. Now, the reason why I take a moment even to attempt to define something as complicated as justice in a sermon is because the term social justice today is often used among Christians and non-Christians both without realizing how many different definitions there are of it and also in particular how there's a form of social justice which is influenced really strongly by an expression of what is sometimes called critical theory or postmodernism, an expression of postmodernism. You may remember my fourfold proposition of postmodernism today. Number one, there is no absolute truth. Number two, therefore all claims to truth are only a power move. Number three, therefore the world is divided between the oppressed and the oppressors. Therefore, number four, you cannot deny the perspective of the oppressed, for to do so is to only increase their oppression. You see, behind many ideas of social justice today is number four, or sometimes called critical theory, that idea. And what that means is sometimes rather strange. We're familiar with the claims that certain social groups are oppressed by other social groups, but there are those who claim that children are oppressed by adults for a practicing adultism. But within the worldview of this kind of social justice, it makes complete sense. For the parents are exercising power and therefore are the oppressors. Now, I know this may seem a little off track here, but whether you're a mum, a student, a businessman or businesswoman, it's important you understand the roots of this social justice, some of it in our society today, 
is really this kind of form of postmodernism. Of course, behind it, it con contradicts itself. If there is no absolute truth, that cannot be absolutely true on its own terms. But then that caves in on itself, so what, is led, what it leads to is different tribes, different divisions, everyone positioning as a victim, and all you have left is power, for there's no truth. Well, what, what are we going to do about it? Uh, some today say we should get rid of all attempts to do justice. It would be much simpler if we just gave up on that. But how can we when we see parables like the Good Samaritan? What we need is a higher ethic, not a lower one. What Jesus teaches here, which is love. Good Samaritan love, which comes out of the great Samaritan love of Jesus who gave himself to rescue us when we were dead on the road to Jericho. Now, don't misunderstand me. That doesn't mean that there are no rights. But it means that we must not attempt to justify ourselves like the lawyer and love someone whether they deserve it or we perceive they deserve it or have the right to it or not. Right's language, when it is not bounded by this overall love, can sometimes lead to strange overreach. Like the UN Declaration on Human Rights in Article 24 says that, and I quote, everybody has a right to periodic vacations with pay which would be surprising news to many mothers here today. If good news, or to teenagers, Dad, I'm only coming on vacation with you this year if you pay me. Haven't you read UN Declaration number 24? You see, our temptation is to stay in the world of theory when the Good Samaritan story is telling us to do something practical. The lawyer comes along and says, who is my neighbor? And really Jesus is saying, wrong question. The right question is, am I being neighborly? And I think it is this Christian understanding of love that is the root of any successful justice in our societies today. And I think even some postmodern people recognize that. Jacques Derrida once said this, today the cornerstone of international law is the sacred, what is sacred in humanity, you shall not kill. In that sense, the concept of crime against humanity is a Christian concept. And I think there will be no such thing in the law today without the Christian heritage, the Abraham heritage, the biblical heritage. So the first thing I'm urging us to do is to redefine what we think of as social justice along biblical terms and not import like a Trojan horse all this postmodern victim posturing, but to be find, defined by the Good Samaritan. Second thing I want to do is to encourage us to set our priorities then along what the, Bible, uh, the Bible's um, trajectory. So for instance... Luke's agenda is salvation. 
Is that our agenda? We so easily slip up here. You know, um, we want a gospel ministry of transforming society. Well, certainly we want to see society transformed, but is that a gospel ministry? Gospel means a message of good news. A gospel ministry is by definition a declaration of something. It's news, it's good news. So what we're doing there is importing something that is as a result of the gospel into the nature of the gospel itself and then we get confused. Well, let me put it like this. If you are passionate about social justice, and of course that's a good thing when it's defined biblically, but if you are passionate about justice, are you even more passionate about the preaching of hell? That would be a good test, I think. After all, do we really want to give people enough food to eat for a few dozen years here and then do nothing so they rot in hell forever after they die? This prioritization then also affects what we do as a church. Uh, The church is a society that is a tool of the kingdom for the purpose of taking that message to the ends of the earth. The church is called specifically to take care of other Christians and there's a lot here that we can talk about tonight when you come back for the question and answer sessions, I hope you do, but the various texts in Acts and in Matthew's gospel that are frequently misused in this regard. That doesn't mean we shouldn't take care of those who are not Christians, clearly, good Samaritan, we must. But it means we need to guard the priority of evangelism and discipleship for the church. You say, well, isn't that just a sort of subtle, privileged way of saying you're not going to do anything? No. Consider this from uh, John Wesley in the 18th century, an evangelist, by the way. It is said of him that he began the year 1785 by spending five days in walking through London often ankle deep in sludge and melting snow to beg 200 pounds which he used in purchasing clothing for the poor. He visited the destitute in their own houses to see with his own eyes what their needs were and how those needs might be relieved. John Wesley Evangelist. And by the way, when he did this, he was at the grand old age of 81. Or another illustration is from the movie about William Wilberforce. That movie sort of depicts him as a Christian and then when he works for the abolition of the slave trade, his Christianity kind of fades into the background in in, in the story. But this is historical nonsense. It was Wilberforce's commitment to Christ that sustained him and inspired him to work for the abolition of the slave trade. So the Good Samaritan story here shapes us to redefine mercy and social justice in biblical, not postmodern terms, so that we're not positioning ourselves as tribes of oppressed and oppressors fighting against each other for each other's rights, and therefore prioritizing what we actually do practically. So easy today, isn't it, to try and figure out a way that you can get a platform by deciding in what ways you've been victimized. 
Uh, I know you don't believe me, but I think in some ways I could make a good case of victimhood. Uh, My ancestors had to leave Ireland. Uh, They lost the family business for various reasons. And our family is still rebuilding from that in some ways. It's sort of ridiculous, of course, I understand that. But then, you know, I find that people treat me as normal in America until I open my mouth. And then it becomes obvious, you know, "Mm, he's not from around here. Is he an Australian? Um, And then when they discover I'm English, I can sort of see sometimes, I'm usually lots of Anglophiles, of course, in America, but I can sometimes see that sort of ghost of the, um, uh, you know, the Revolutionary War, you know, the English are coming, you know, and, um, and I'm actually sure I have been marginalized by various people. And uh, let me not mention the abuse, and I use that term without embarrassment that I've received at the hands of various ministry folk over the many years I've been in ministry. That would be a long tale and make this an even longer sermon. Um, And a funny one at some level, if you could bear to put a good smile on it as I try to. Now we don't want to define who is my neighbor. We want to define, am I being neighborly? We don't want to make it all theory. We want to actually do something. We want to take care of the person we see outside of church today who needs a smile and an invitation back to lunch. Sometimes it can be more radical. I was involved in various ministries to homeless people over the years. One time a man I knew could not find a place in the shelter that evening And it was very, very cold that night. And I was sharing a house with friends at that time in my life. And I invited that man back into our house to stay overnight. He slept there that evening. The next morning, one of my friends gave me a real earful. He really complained at me for inviting him. Uh, The risk, I put them all under. Which I suppose was true. Maybe it was unwise. But sometimes you just stop and take care of the guy beaten up on the side of the road, even if stopping means there might be more bandits around who have left that person there as sort of bait for the next naive victim. Sometimes you will be taken advantage of if you act as a good Samaritan. You will. But you still stop. Why? Because you love God, because you've listened to Jesus and have got clear about what Jesus said and done for you at the cross and therefore now in response you love your neighbor practically without justifying yourself. You just, you just do it. You redefine your thinking along the biblical trajectory here. You know, it's not all up to the church. There is what the church is called to do and there are what Christians as Christians are called to do. Think in biblical categories. So prioritizing as a church what a church is intended to do. Evangelism, discipleship, the Lord's Supper, baptism. And when a church focuses on these things, it equips God's people to be salt and light in the world and have an impact as they are good Samaritans on the way down to Jericho. The church can take care of the poor. 
It can do that as a witness. The church is not called to run for office as a politician or teach economics in the high school, but Christians are and are to be equipped by the church with mandates for such action and inspired by the gospel. The church preaches from the Bible so that then Christians are salt and light in the world or good Samaritans on the way to Jericho. So those are the first two movements. The text is teaching us that in order to reach out, we must reach up, listen up. Second, we must therefore redefine and reprioritize along biblical lines. This is all about cross and culture. And what we're trying to do here is in that old uh, well-known definition of Christ and culture, we're thinking about in terms of Luke, that is we want to call it cross and culture. That is not now simply overlapping sets of where we put our loyalties, but now shaped by the gospel, the movement of the gospel, Christ's power through his word and by his Holy Spirit transforms us to both love God and love neighbor. But what are the third movement? Very briefly now. What does this mean in practice? Well, for the Christian, let me make a proposal. Let us stop talking of social justice in postmodern terms and start talking about justice in biblical terms. Mercy, the Good Samaritan. If you like little phrases, here's one. The way to impact the world is to be impacted by the word. Or there must be a spiritual change that comes from the power of the gospel to enable us first to love God and then love neighbor. We say, okay, let's be practical then. How love God? Well, spend time in the Bible. Join a group. Come each Sunday. Come back tonight when we have our question and answer time. You say, well, how love neighbor? There are lots of opportunities for that uh, that uh, we do as a church. Um, Naomi's or uh, involved with in one way or another. Naomi's house for victims of sexual trafficking. You can get involved there. Stars Ministry for the Disabled. Urban Outreach Ministries in Englewood in Chicago. Uh, Sanctity of Human Life Task Force. Uh, initiatives like My Half of the Sky Coffee Shop. Not to mention your actual neighbor. Love for neighbor will only become real when it's rooted first of all in loving God by listening to the words of Jesus like Mary. So the point here that Jesus is making is that he could not love his neighbor. Therefore, he did not love his neighbor. And we're all in the same situation. What we need is a saving encounter with our God. And that can only come as we listen to the words of Jesus and are transformed by his spirit. Which brings me to what this has to say to non-Christians. Very simply then, my dear friend, would you receive Jesus' teaching? Would you come and join us each week? See, here in this story, there is the good Samaritan, but there is also the great Samaritan. Jesus rescues us, not half dead, but fully dead spiritually on the road to Jericho. As Jesus goes to Jerusalem, this movement of Luke's gospel, he is there to rescue. 
And he can rescue you this morning. Even if you do feel half dead, all you need to do is repent and trust him. Well, this is the theme of cross and culture. It's just beginning. This morning we looked at mercy ministries and social justice. Uh, I I invite you uh, to come back tonight and have a uh, session of question and answers here, right here in the sanctuary. I'll be here. You don't need to submit questions beforehand. It will be live. And and then next week we're going to tackle sexuality, followed by race the week after. It's an important series. I invite you to come back each week and bring people with you. I'm going to conclude with a parable. For there is one aspect of this parable that I have not yet mentioned. The Samaritan was not simply hated by the Jews at the time because he was from a different ethnic background, but because as a group they were viewed as unorthodox in their religious practices, borderline pagan. Here's the parable. You may recognize it. A certain man drove down from Wheaton to Chicago. Along the way, he was carjacked and left half dead lying on the side of the highway. A priest drove by, saw him, and just slightly moved lane and kept on moving, passed by on the other side. A pastor drove by, and when he came to that place, he also saw him, and he too passed by on the other side. But a Who would it be? You? According to Jesus, the only way we can fulfill the requirements of neighbor love is to have the love of God in us that comes from listening to the words of Jesus. Let's pray together. Our Lord God, we pray that you would then give us that love. Holy Spirit, would you move among us? And then give us compassion that as we leave the building this morning, we would not go by on the other side, but reach out as you give us opportunity. In Jesus' name, amen.